morning, everybody. Our reading this morning is from Nehemiah, chapters 1 and 2. Um, this is God's word for us today. We can just take a minute to still our hearts, be ready to hear and listen, and ho- hopefully understand. Okay, from chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. (coughs) And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you sent me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, 
But when Sambalath the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied, I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I just pray as Andrew comes to preach to us this morning, Father, that you would direct his words and guide his words that will help us understand these passages and what they mean for us here today. Father, give us all ears to listen and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Claire. Let me just get myself started here. Uh, this week, if you didn't know, uh, Lauren started her new job uh, on here, on on here, uh, on staff here with Village. Um, and next Sunday, uh, as part of our gathering, we're going to commission her for that work and pray over her and thank God for her and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know, maybe there was. Maybe there was stuff that she had to do to prepare for starting this job. I, I didn't ask her. But if, if you have a job, if you work, even if you, your work is, is that you're a stay-at-home parent, a full-time parent, everyone's a full-time parent, that's a stupid phrase, a stay-at-home parent, then uh, you'll know that there are things that you have to do not just to prepare for your work, but to sustain you in your work. So even as simple as if you don't get enough sleep, Throughout the week, you'll be tired at work and, and you won't be as productive. You probably have to look at your calendar coming up. Like me and Healy do this on Sundays. Like, what's coming up this week? All the things, the scouts and the, you, you know, all the things in the diary that we have to do. The swimming lessons and the meetings and all this kind of stuff. If you're like me, you need a constant supply of coffee, right? Throughout the day to keep, I mean, I'm, I'm known for being mentally sharp. It's a coffee it keeps me mentally sharp. But depending on what your work entails, you, you probably have particular things that you have to do for your job in order to sustain your work. If you're a teacher, for example, then you have to prepare lesson plans, don't you? You can't just rock, well, maybe teachers do this, I don't know, just turn up and like try and teach the class. 
If you're a doctor, you probably have to read medical journals and, and keep on top of things. Or if you have a physical job, maybe if you're like a, a firefighter or something, you have to keep yourself physically fit. But whatever it is somebody does for work, there are things that, particular things that they have to put in place and continually be doing in order to sustain them in that work. And the Christian life is no different. So if, if you don't know already, if you're a Christian, if, if you're trusting in Jesus and trying to seeking to follow Him, then you have a particular type of work to be doing, right? It's a lifelong job that you can't retire from. <laughs> when you become a believer, you sign up for this new full-time lifelong job. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. One of my favorite passages in, in Scripture is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and it finishes with this, for we are His workmanship. That word is, is literally like a masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So in other words, we are God's handiwork. We're His masterpiece. He has created us through Jesus, through the work of Jesus dying on the cross, and we have been made for this purpose to carry out work, good works, that God has prepared even before we were born. So if you're a Christian, then you have work to do. And so then the question we need to ask is, well, what is this work? Ephesians 2 verse 10 calls it good works. Jesus himself refers to it as love God and love your neighbor. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's referred to as serving the poor, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, proclaiming the gospel. The Bible gives us so, so many ways to be about this work, but in its totality, the work that we are part of uh, is joining God as He builds His kingdom in the world. God is at work building His kingdom, and He is using His saints to do it. Ordinary people like me and you, simply trusting in Jesus and being led by the Holy Spirit are the tools and workforce that God is using to spread His kingdom across the world. In creation, right in, in the start of the Bible in Genesis, we see that, that God uh, creates humanity out of His, His overflowing goodness and love. He creates humanity and He puts Him in a garden temple to flourish in His presence. And in Revelation, we see that this garden temple is a city that has spread across the entire created universe. It covers the whole world. And one of my favorite verses, and a great verse for all Christians to memorize, I think, is, and I talk about it all the time, is Habakkuk 2.14. This prophecy from not long uh, after the time of Nehemiah, actually. But he says, um, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what God is doing in the world, and we, the church, are the ones He is using to do it. So this is why our vision statement, I, I mentioned, mentioned at the beginning, uh, it, it says that we desire to be a community of people who love Jesus, each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewing of all things. The world is not how He created it. The world is not what He desires it to be. And he is using us to rebuild this rebuilding project, if you like, that he began with Jesus and he recruits us into. So if you are in Jesus, you're part of this work. So if we have work to do and we know that we are part of this work that God is doing, then let's come back to our original point. What do we need to do in order to sustain us for this work? Do we need to go to the gym to stay physically fit? 
Do we need to, a lot of coffee? Probably, always. Do we, need, you know, do we need to create lesson plans? Do we need to do all these things? Well, as we begin to look at the book of Nehemiah today, the answer to this question is given to us in chapters 1 to 2. And it's simply this. Joining God's kingdom-building work requires a life of prayer. You could say being a Christian is the same thing. Requires a life of prayer. Following Jesus requires a life of prayer. Loving God requires a life of prayer. Put it how you will. Joining God in, in His kingdom-building work requires a life of prayer. We're now in the, the third phase of, of this return from exile project. Zerubbabel was the first uh, leader, the first group to come back to begin to rebuild the temple, and, and they did rebuild the temple. Then Ezra came, and, and Ezra brought the law back and tried to rebuild the community. And now we come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, and we get a picture of Jesus in Nehemiah, a, a leader whose, whose heart breaks for the brokenness of his people. A leader who, who prays and intercedes on behalf of those he loves, just like Jesus. And just like Jesus, he's a leader who, who faces up to the powers and authorities of the world in order to bring about the restoration of his people. Just like Jesus, he is a leader who is dedicated to the promises of God. But Nehemiah also gives us a picture of, of joining in God's rebuilding work. And you see, above all, I would say, and, and maybe Nehemiah, if he was here, would disagree, but I, I think, above all, Nehemiah is a man whose work for God's kingdom is fueled by prayer. He's a man of prayer. And there are four lessons from the prayer life of Nehemiah that we can apply to our own lives as we join God in the renewal of all things. And the first one is this. We see, we see in Nehemiah prayer caused by love for God's people. There's a notion going around and I was even talking about it. I had three separate conversations with people this week about this. There's a notion going around that, that it's possible to be a Christian and not be part of a church. Now, now, I just don't agree with that. The idea that you can love Jesus and even follow him but not love his people. This idea is completely at odds with the concept of following God in both the Old Testament and the New. And when we come to look at the book of Nehemiah, the idea of the Lone Ranger Christian it won't make much sense. If you're someone who believes that, then you're probably going to have that notion challenged as we look at the book of Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah is a believer who sees himself as part of the people of God. He cares deeply about God's people who aren't doing very well in Jerusalem, and he wants to see them healed and restored. And so one day in November, December time, that's the month of Chislev, if you're wondering, November, December time. One of his brothers, we don't know if it's his actual biological brother or if this is his way of saying that he's, they are a family, they're God's people. One of his brothers comes back from Judah and Nehemiah asks him, well, how are things going on? You know, you guys have been, this, you know, returning from exile thing's been happening for 70 years or so right now, so how's it going? And it turns out that things aren't going so well. You see, even though Nehemiah isn't there himself, he knows who he is. He, 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 he knows that he is one of God's people, and it's clear that they're not doing well. Yes, the temple has been rebuilt, and yes, the people are trying to scrape their lives together under God's law, but the city is still in ruin. Enemies are still all among them. The people are in great trouble and shame. 
it tells us. The walls are crumbled down and the gates have been burned. When Nehemiah hears this, he says, verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Do you see his commitment to God's people? Do you see the, 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 the affinity he has for them? Days of tears, fasting, and prayer to the God of heaven. This is how he responds when he hears the suffering of the people. This is not lip service. This is not just a quick, oh, please, Lord, help the poor people back in Jerusalem. It's not like when you get, a, you know, when you get a text from someone saying, can you pray for this? And you just reply with the, you know, the praying emoji hands. And maybe you shoot up a quick, oh, Lord, help them. This is not what is happening here. This is a prayer based on a deep identifying with and connection to God's people. You see, Nehemiah is deeply committed to God's people. He is one of them. He feels their pain. He's bound to them. This is deep personal identity with God's people. And when he hears of how his brothers and sisters are suffering, he's moved to days of tears and mourning and praying and fasting. And my point is that this deep emotional connection to God's people, this, this deep, deep identifying with them should be the norm within the church. This is how we should be with one another. And you only have to read the letters of the Apostle Paul to see that he is far more concerned with the, with, with the suffering of his brothers and sisters than he is with his own trials. And, and he doesn't shy away from talking about his own trials. He doesn't at all. But he's way more concerned about the suffering of his brothers and sisters. And, and Paul's a guy who suffered a lot. Shipwrecks, snake bites, stonings, riots, all these kind of stuff, imprisonments, beatings. But he's so much more concerned. He cares so deeply about his brothers and sisters. And you see, in the people of God, that's us, the church. There is no us and them. We have been bound together by the Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we are, we are joined to him. Yes, we are united with Jesus, but we are also joined to one another. This is why the Bible uses family language to describe us. We are brothers and sisters. God is our father and Christ is our older brother. You see, you can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. It just doesn't make sense. That's like saying, I I'm a sister, but I don't have any siblings. To be a Christian is to be part of God's family, bound together with, with a bond stronger than any earthly relationship. And this should drive us to pray for our brothers and sisters, to pray for one another. Like, we are now brothers and sisters, and we will forever be brothers and sisters. You're stuck with me forever. <laughs> and so when one of us hurts, we all hurt. I mean, he... he Nehemiah is four months' journey away from Jerusalem. And he hears of their pain, and he mourns, and he prays for them for days. And I wonder, do we identify this strongly with God's people? Do we hurt when our brother hurts? Do we rejoice when our sister rejoices? I guess this is a challenge for us today. Do we really love each other? Are our brothers and sisters a joy, or are they a burden? Is it a burden to care for each other? Is it a chore to meet with your missional community? 
our Father has given us a family and granted us a unity and then called us to walk in that unity. The Apostle John, uh, you know, the, the OGs of Village South, remember this, like our very first sermon series that we did when we planted the church was we did a sermon series in, in, in 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 3, 18, John, one of Jesus' apostles, he's really old by this stage. He, he, he comes out and he just says, little children. That's, he's so old that he refers to the church as little children. Love one another. Love one another. And he's not making that up. He's just repeating what he heard from Jesus himself, his friend Jesus. And Jesus says that it's by your love for one another that the world will know you're my disciples. And so we need to foster this kind of deep connection for one another. Just like Nehemiah had, his love for his brothers and sisters drove him to prayer. Love each other. Put each other first. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Pray for one another. Serve one another. That's the first lesson we see from Nehemiah's prayer life. The second thing we see is that Nehemiah prayed, prayed, had prayer based on uh, knowledge of God's character. He had prayer based on knowledge of God's character. Now, the interesting thing about Nehemiah's response to what's happening in Jerusalem, it's not an emotional rant, right? It is very emotional. He's weeping, right? It, it's definitely emotional, but it's not a rant. And his prayer over these days, and luckily it's recorded for us, he records it for us, is full of scripture and knowledge of God, right? This is really cool for us because this gives us instruction on how to pray. He prays God's word to God. If you're ever struggling on how to pray, pray the Bible. Pray God's word back to him. This is what Nehemiah does. This is one of the best ways to pray. He uses his knowledge of God's word to appeal to God's character. That, that, that means that in his knowledge of the Bible, because he's been studying the scriptures, that has taught him who God is and what God is like. And then because of that, he knows who God is, and so he is able to appeal to God. And the first thing we, we, we see is that he appeals to God sovereignty. He starts by saying, O Lord God of heaven. Right, this is an Old Testament way of saying that God is in control over absolutely everything. Okay, this is, uh, this is not some local deity. This is not a statue in the temple. This is not the God of Jerusalem, not the God of Susa, where he is. This is the God of heaven. Yes, things aren't going very well for the people in Jerusalem, but he, God is still in control. And listen, when we're facing the worst kinds of trials in life, what kind of God do you want to pray to? Do you want to pray to the God who's not in control? Or do you want to pray to the God who is in control, even though it feels like things are out of control? Like if you're on a flight, on an airplane, and, uh, and, and things get a bit rough and turbulent. I've only ever been scared once in an airplane, and it was the middle of the night, and it was the roughest I've ever felt it. And I was like, oh. But if you're on a flight and things get a bit rough, and then you look at the cabin crew, and if they're calm and collected and happy, then you know that even though things feel scary, even though things feel like, oh my goodness, I'm going to crash to my death in a horrible ball of flame, if they're okay, then you know that you're okay. Even if it doesn't feel like it, you know that everything's okay. So it is when we pray to sovereign God. Oh Lord God of heaven, when things are falling to pieces and everything seems to be going wrong, we want the sovereign God, the God who is in control. 
They wouldn't want to pray to a God who's not in control. But then secondly, we see that Nehemiah prays to the God who keeps his covenant. Look at verse 5. He says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We've already done this this morning. We've already today prayed this verse. Like our wains do this all the time, right? They, 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 they go, Daddy, you promised. That's a very childlike faith thing to do. Anybody who has ever been around kids will have, will have seen this happen or have had it done to them. It's the most annoying thing in the world. Yes, I suppose whenever I was tired last night, I did say, yeah, that'll be fine. Daddy, you promised. Mommy, you promised. This is what Nehemiah is doing here. He says, God, this is your covenant. And he says it's a covenant of love, covenant of steadfast love. God, you're the one who made the covenant, and you're a promise-keeping God. Nehemiah is saying, Lord, you're in control. Please remember your promises. And the other thing to notice is that notice is that the covenant of love doesn't mean that people won't be punished for unfaithfulness. In fact, that's kind of built into the covenant. But it also means that God will remember his people. God remembers his people. And so Nehemiah keeps going, building on who God is and his knowledge of God. And we see then that Nehemiah prays to the God who expects repentance when there is sin. Look at verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. See, even within the covenant of love, there has to be repentance, okay? And we're not in this old covenant anymore. We're in a new covenant with God based on the, the work of Jesus. But nevertheless, there has to be repentance when there is sin. So, so, so think, about, think about a marriage. Marriage is, is a, a picture of, of God's covenant love. God's covenant of love with us. And a marriage in itself is, is, a, is a covenant relationship. It's a permanent union based on promises and responsibilities. And in fact, it's the most solid foundation by which two people can, can connect themselves to one another. But if you think that marriage doesn't require repentance when you've done wrong, I mean, <laughs> let me tell you from experience, it very much does. Even within that most solid and permanent union, repentance has to happen when wrong has been done. Not because it's the, not because the, the, the repentance is the foundation of the covenant or anything like that. But it does build on the communion, not the union, the communion. Even in the covenant of love, there has to be repentance. It's not that we repent once to become a Christian and say, yes, Lord, I have been wrong. I have sinned. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I, I, I believe that you rose from the dead. And then you're a Christian, never have to repent again. That's not how this works. Repentance is part and parcel of the Christian life. And so Nehemiah, appealing to God's character on who he is, repents for the sin of his people. Then we see that Nehemiah prays to the God who will forgive and restore his people. You see how he knows God? He goes on in verse 8 and 9 to say, Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, right? But 
If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. You see, Nehemiah knows that God has promised to forgive and to restore his people. And isn't this our promise too? This is, our, this is the promise that we have in different words, fully realized in Jesus. Haven't we been promised that when we confess our sin that God is just and able to forgive? This is the God we pray to. If you are a Christian, then, then you're in an unbreakable covenant with God through your faith in the Lord Jesus. And, and in that covenant, we don't have to pay for our sins. Jesus has already done that. We just repent of our wrongdoing and walk in the forgiveness that Jesus has already won for us. And then we see Nehemiah's prayer kind of fully developed in its final completion. And he says that, and we see that Nehemiah prays to the God who knows his people and watches over them. Look at verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah knows that God is not some distant, absent authority figure. He knows because he has read and studied the Bible. He didn't even have the full Bible that we had. He had the first five books of the Bible. But he knows who God is. He knows that these are the people that God has brought out of slavery and redeemed. And, and he knows that God doesn't abandon his people. He knows that God doesn't abandon those he's ransomed. This is what he prays on. He prays on who he prays based on who God is. He knows God. So let's examine our own prayer lives for a minute. Do we, do we pray the word of God? Do we appeal to God's character? Do we repent of our sin? Do we trust God's promises? And this is not meant to be a, a guilt trip or anything. What I'm trying to bring us to a place to see is that is just what's available for us as God's people. Like we don't pray to a statue in a temple. We don't recite some mantra. We don't have some kind of vain hope. Please, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord. No, we belong to the living God. And we, the God we get to pray to is the one who is in control over everything, the one who always keeps his covenant with us, the one who expects repentance but always grants forgiveness when we do repent, and the one who knows us and watches over us. Not absent, not far away. He's not an if, but, and maybe kind of God. He knows you and he watches over you. He loves you. Like whatever it is right now in your life, you need to know that, that God knows you and he is watching over you. And that's the basis that we come to him on. Just like Nehemiah. Lord, I know who you are. So I know that even in my sinfulness, my brokenness, my worry, my doubt, my pain, all the stuff I'm carrying, I know that I know who you are. So I'm going to say this. Remember your promises. Now tell me, let me push this a little bit further. Tell me, based on all of that knowledge, why do we not pray? <laughs> I'm pushing this a little bit this morning. I know I am. But why is it hard for us? Why do we get nervous? Why do we not want to? And I don't want this to feel like a burden. I want us to be encouraged. 
Do you see who you get to pray to? Do you see the goodness of God that you are in relationship with? Be encouraged. If, if you don't know what to pray, then just pray God's word to him. Appeal to his sovereignty. Appeal to his promises. Appeal to his forgiveness and covenant. You might think that you can't pray, but you can. And moreover, you need to. Trying to be a Christian without praying is, is like trying to be, and I'm sorry to use another marriage analogy, but it's, try, it's like trying to be married to someone without talking to them. This week, maybe in our missional communities, when you get together, begin to encourage one another to pray. Make room for that. Even if you're someone who, who's never prayed out loud before, just try it. Don't focus on your own inability. Focus on God's ability. Let's become a praying people, not because we think our prayers are great or well-rounded or, or well-worded or anything, but because we know who our God is. That's how Nehemiah prayed. He knew who God is. Thirdly, from Nehemiah, we see a kind of prayer that causes boldness in God's mission. My final two points are a little bit shorter. He prays a kind of prayer that causes boldness in God's mission, right? So right after Nehemiah's prayer, at the end of chapter 1, Nehemiah uh, includes a pretty massive detail about himself. And I think that I would probably have included this earlier in the story because I would have liked to brag. And he simply says, at the end of chapter 1, now I was cupbearer to the king. You see, a, a cupbearer... Um, we might think it sounds like he's just a, a kind of lowly servant. He's not, but he's not just somebody that brings the, the cup, like the king is drinks, right? He would have tasted everything that would have passed the king's lips just to make sure he wasn't being poisoned. These old kings were very paranoid and probably rightly so. So Nehemiah was actually a very trusted advisor of the king. He would have been with the king most of the time, more than a lot of, he would have had more access to the kingdom than a lot of people would have had. Uh, back in the time of Henry VIII, uh, the king had uh, a, a person in his, uh, in his staff, in his employ, in his court called the groom of the still. Anyone ever heard of the groom of the still? Now, the groom of the still was to, uh, I'm going to try and say this carefully because we're in church this Sunday morning being recorded, but the groom of the still, his job was to go with the king to the bathroom and let's say, uh, serve him in a very intimate way, okay? But far from being seen as a demeaning position, this was really sought after job. Because you got to be on your own with the king when no one else did. You're the only person who was ever alone with the king apart from the queen. And you could have some influence there. And so we might think that Nehemiah had a pretty lowly position, but actually he was a pretty important person in the Persian Empire. Try saying that fast five times. Pretty important person in the Persian Empire. But Nehemiah, he's in this position of authority. He's in this position of influence. He's so far inside the system of the empire that it's as possible to get, but still in his heart, he was part of God's people. Even though he serves King Artaxerxes, look at verse 11. He says, um, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Even though he serves the king or exerts, he really considered himself a servant of God. And because he has been praying and fasting over the plight of his people, he has grown in his boldness. He, he's grown in his knowledge of who he is. And Nehemiah does something that all believers should do. He uses his position to 
advance God's kingdom. He uses his position to advance God's kingdom. Now, you probably are not the cupbearer to the king. Maybe you are. I don't know. That'd be pretty cool. Um, maybe you don't have some political influence. Maybe you do. That's great. But you do have friends. You do have families. You do have colleagues. You do have your kids. You do have whatever it may be. And you see, Nehemiah could have used his access to the king to get power and wealth, authority for himself. He could have used his influence to get what he wanted. But he doesn't do this. He loves his people deeply. And as he has been praying, his consistent prayer life has made him move into action to see God's mission accomplished. And he is bold. And then as chapter 2 begins, the king notices that he is sad and asks him about it. And it's funny because the king's like, why is your face sad? Because you're not sick. Like that's the only reason somebody could be sad. What's wrong with you? The king's like, what's, what's going on? And this is a pure danger moment for Nehemiah. Because if you say the wrong thing to this king, you're in very real danger of, of literally losing your head. Or if you read the book of Esther, being impaled on a spike. Absolute danger moment. No, no wonder he says in verse 2 that I was very much afraid. Of course you were, Nehemiah. Like this guy could end your life with a click of his fingers. But does fear stop him? No. You see, he fears the king of kings more than he fears the king of Persia. He prays to the God of heaven. Now, this isn't the kind of prayer that he's been praying for days earlier. This isn't the prayer and fasting. This is the moment he says, Lord, here goes. Please help me. He shoots a prayer up and he prays to the God of heaven and then he asks the king what he wants. And this is what it means to be bold in mission. Of course, you're going to be afraid. But let me tell you, in your life in Belfast, it's very unlikely but that by taking the chance to share the gospel with somebody at work, that you are risking your actual life. Even though this is the case for for lots of our brothers and sisters around the world. You see, being bold in mission doesn't mean not being scared. Being bold in mission means being scared, then asking for God's help and trusting him for the outcome. That's what Nehemiah did. And he did it at much greater risk to himself than we have to face. He asked God for help and then trusted God for the outcome, even though he was greatly afraid. And Nehemiah didn't know what was going to happen here. Because if he had... He wouldn't have been scared because we knew how it turned out. It turned out pretty well. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he does know that God is in control and he does know what has to be done. And this is what it means to be bold in mission. Like I long for this kind of boldness. I wish we were filled with the kind of boldness that Nehemiah exhibits here, the kind of boldness that our brothers and sisters in, in, in China and Iran do have. I recently heard uh, about a pastor in Iran and he travels... Like, it's highly dangerous to be a Christian in Iran. Do you, do you realize what this is like? This, this pastor, and he travels to towns and villages to encourage people and to share the gospel. And, and for sometimes when he leaves, he's gone for days at a time because he has to travel far. And when he leaves, he kisses his wife, and he says, if I perish, I perish. That's his life. That's what he does. How is it that we're not willing to share the gospel at the risk of being laughed at, but they're willing to share the gospel at the risk of being killed or imprisoned? Like, do, we, do we want this boldness in our mission and evangelism? 
the kind of boldness that says, I am greatly afraid, but so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah didn't know the outcome, but he knew his God. And being bold on mission is simply doing what is right and trusting God for the outcome. This is what it means to rely on God's sovereignty. You see, you see why that the deep knowledge of God he had was so necessary? You see why he had to pray the word of God, why he had to, to rely on God's promises? Do you see now how he got to this position? And what I love about this is that as the conversation unfolds, he just gets bolder and bolder. And he's like, I'm going to pray. And he's like, my brother and sisters are struggling. And then the king says, what do you want? And he's like, aha, well, I'm, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? And he keeps asking and asking for more and more. By the way, we need wood. By the way, we need money. By the way, we need this. Just pray, ask God for help, and then trust him for the outcome. Listen, if our desire to see God's kingdom built is based on prayer and fasting, we will be bold in our witness. But on, on the other hand, if we're not consistent in prayer, then we'll never have boldness in God's mission. God, this church, this group of people in South Belfast for a reason. He has put us here to share the good news of Jesus so that people can be saved and raised from death to life in Christ. And everything we do is for ultimately that reason, for the glory of Jesus. That's why we are here. And we want our church to grow through people trusting in Jesus, don't we? Like, it, it, it's, it's, it's so lovely and wonderful, and, and we delight when, when Christians come to join us, that we love that. And if that's you, then you're welcome. But we want people to be raised from death to life in Jesus. We see in our <laughs> number daily those who are being saved. And if this is what we want, then we need to start praying. Praying based on God's character and prayer that makes us bold in the gospel. And so we've seen that Nehemiah was caused by his love for God's people. We've seen that it was based on his knowledge of God's character and it gave him boldness in God's mission. And the final thing I want us to see is that prayer like this often leads to opposition from God's enemies. Prayer often leads to opposition. And now, if you've been with us through the book of Ezra, you could have probably predicted what happens at the end of chapter 2. This is the pattern that we've already seen, that, that God starts to work through his obedient people. Then pretty soon, in fact, even before the work begins, opposition rises up against it. Nehemiah has finally, after months of preparation and journeying and letters from the king, made it to Jerusalem and carried out his inspection. And the situation's not good at all, right? He finds broken down walls, the gates have been burned, there's heaps of rubble, and some places the rubble, like I, I was picturing this, like, you know, those pictures from, um, you know, like London during the Blitz, that's what I was picturing, like heaps of, heaps of rubble that the, the donkey couldn't even get through. And so he goes to the leaders of the, the Jews and he begins to equip them and encourage them. And, and man, there was about three different sermons I wanted to preach because there's so much in that that they strengthen their hands for the work and, and all that, you know, let's rise up and build. I want to do stuff on that, but, but let's focus on where we are. But before the work has even started, opposition comes. These lads, Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, they just hear about it. I heard you're thinking about this and they're already 
they're all like this is um, you know like you're already discouraging them. I think I've told this. Not even in Uri yet, and we're like, oh, we're cycling the Paris, and someone's like, yeah, you'll never make it. You know, like, like cheers. Like we haven't even really started yet. This is what's happening here. And listen, church, we need to be ready for this. We. If we love God's people, if our prayer makes us bold in mission, then we have to expect that we will receive opposition. And as we'll see throughout this book, the opposition sometimes comes from within as well. Being bold in mission means that we will be jeered at, that we will be hated just like Nehemiah was. We need to expect this and be ready for it. You see, praying, praying for boldness in mission, that should probably come with a warning. <laughs> Because God might answer that prayer. And then you'll probably find yourself in situations where you will be opposed. Like we're probably all okay with praying that God would make us bold in mission. Lord, you, you know, I even prayed this prayer on, on Friday when I was going to spend some time with a non-Christian friend. I, I just said, oh Lord, you know, like make me bold. Give me opportunity. Uh, make me, you know, uh, let me be bold when the opportunity does come. And we're all like that. But are we ready to pray that prayer knowing that it will most likely bring opposition? Like, are we willing to live this kind of life? Like, Jesus wasn't messing around when he, he said that we have to lay down our lives. That, that wasn't, you know, that's like, like an optional extra. This is the result of being faithful to him. But listen, when we do face opposition, we have the same assurance that Nehemiah had. Listen to verse 20 at the end of chapter 2. Then I replied to them. And he says, then I replied to them, the God of heaven, see that? <laughs> Sovereign God, he's in control of everything. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The God of heaven will make us prosper. This isn't prosperity like the God of heaven will make us rich and give me a nice house and a Mercedes and all that kind of stuff. That's not what he's saying. The God of heaven will, will, will cause us to succeed in, in what he has called us to. You see, Nathan wasn't perfect. We shouldn't let in some ways, we can look at Nathan and say, yes, I want to be, or not Nathan. Why am I saying Nathan? Nehemiah. Ne Nehemiah wasn't perfect. We shouldn't look at him and say, he's the person I want to be like. We should look at Jesus and say, he's the person I want to be like. Nehemiah knew he wasn't capable of doing the work that God had given him to do. He's already confessed for his own sin. And so he relies on God's strength. He knew that it was only through God's strength that he would succeed. And he knew that God would cause his people to prosper. The God of heaven will make us prosper. He doesn't say, listen, I've thought about this. King, I'm full of courage. I've got great leadership skills. Oh, I'm really committed to God. And so I will prosper. He doesn't say any of those things. God who makes his people prosper. Not our skill. Not our desire, not our strength, not even our, our commitment to the church, our commitment to God. It's God who's building this kingdom, and it's only God who makes it happen. All we do is depend on him in prayer, 
and allow ourselves to be used by him. Now listen, I'm finished, but I want to I wanna finish with this. There's a danger that in all of this that we can become overwhelming. Maybe you're even thinking this is overwhelming. Like <laughs> the burdens of life already feel like too much, and now we're being asked to do more somehow. <laughs> Maybe this doesn't feel like the light burden and easy yoke that Jesus promised to us. But to follow Jesus is to join God in his kingdom work. We've already seen that. And Jesus invites us to come to him and receive rest for our souls. And the secret is that this praying life, like Nehemiah had, is how we come to Jesus. What Jesus calls us to isn't toiling on our own strength. A praying life is simply how we depend on Jesus. And it's when we're dependent on God in prayer that our love for his people grows, that our knowledge of his character deepens, that we grow bold in our mission, and that we are able to endure opposition. Like, I, I bet you anything that if we were to do a survey in this room right now, that most of us would say that we feel tired, weak, ill-equipped, immature, maybe even apathetic. What's the point? And maybe you are all those things. Maybe you're a combination of those things. But here's the truth that you need to hear and believe this morning. The God of heaven will make us prosper. He will make us prosper. And listen, if it's God who makes us prosper, if it's God who's doing the work of, of keeping <laughs> and building this kingdom, and if, 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 if his if knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, if he's the one who's doing it, then how can our failures and weakness and tiredness and apathy and doubt stop him? He has chosen his people to be the way that he accomplishes his mission. And he will not let us fail. So if you feel tired, if you feel weak, if you feel immature, if you feel apathetic, please don't write yourself off. Come to the Lord. Turn to him in prayer. Cast your burdens on him. <laughs> we could have done a whole other section. Nehemiah cast his burdens on the Lord. That's what that prayer is. <laughs> Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two. And I don't have time to go into all the theological implications of that, but it's simply a symbol to show that the way to God was opened up for all those who come to God through Jesus. And now he invites us to come to him and find rest. And as we do, as we cultivate lives of prayer, we will be changed. We'll, we'll find that he is at work in us. We'll find that he will make us prosper, our, our, his people prosper. We'll find that that our strength and encouragement rises. We'll find that he will carry and sustain us. This is our God, and this is what he calls us. I pray that the Holy Spirit encourages us in this this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. I just pray uh, now that, that your word would be carried not just to our ears, but, but actually to our hearts through your breath, the Holy Spirit. Lord, Lord, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not even doubtful that some of us are feeling tired and weak and immature and ill-equipped and apathetic and full of doubt. I'm, I'm, I, I know that because that's how I am, Lord. And I, I just pray that 
you would, rather than that stopping us from coming to you prayer, that would lead us into prayer. Father, may we have such a deep love for each other that, that we pray for each other, that we mourn for each other, that we fast for each other, that we rejoice when each other rejoicing. Father, would you uh, allow us to see who you are through your word and then pray prayers based on that? Lord, you don't even ask us to come up with prayers. I pray that you would, uh, as, we, as we pray, that you would cause us to be bold in mission. Lord, we long to see our friends and family. Even, Lord, if our, if our um, boldness isn't there, we, we know that we have people in our lives that we want to see come to know you. So we ask for that boldness to come from you. To rely on your strength, just like Nehemiah. Father, we thank you that you cause your people to prosper. You carry us, you hold us, you sustain us. You are so good, Lord. Father, I pray for anyone maybe in this room or, or listening online or whatever. of your love and as we come to the table now we pray for the food we pray um, as we are invited to come and sit and eat Jesus our strength would rise peace would just flood our hearts and you fill us up with the knowledge of your sheer love for us that we see in the death and resurrection Holy Spirit.